welcome. Glad you're all here. Um, as always, just remember to keep updated. Um, you know, we've been in our series in Romans. We're going to continue in our series in the book of Romans. We're in kind of the heart, one of the hardest places, but probably the perfect for where we are right now because our series is called Not Ashamed of the Good News. Uh, we're in a time where we remember the good news of Jesus coming to earth when our culture recognizes it's, it's Christmas and the idea that he was born. And, and so just remember that we have a lot of opportunity to share the good news, even in the midst of kind of the mess uh, that we're in because of who he is. Our theme verse from Romans, we've said this every week. I keep saying it because hopefully by the time we're done with this series, you'll have it memorized. It'll just become second nature. The best way to memorize scripture is just to keep going over it. And so it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And this is the verse I want us to look at before we really dive in. And this is one that really hits home, I think, for where we're at right now. This is the Christmas story, and it's an angel that comes to Joseph, and he says, Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. So remember, Jesus' name means Yah Joshua. It means Yahweh saves. And so Joseph is saying, this, this baby that's going to be born is going to be the new Joshua. So everybody has this image of Jesus coming, right? And that he's going to be the new Joshua that leads the warriors into the promised land, that takes over and reigns. Which is why later his message is rejected is because what ends up happening is people look at Jesus and they start listening to his teachings and they begin to doubt. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. They begin to doubt and wonder how can this be the new Joshua? How can this be the Yahweh who saves when he's telling us these things that we're going to have to like surrender our lives and die to ourselves and pick up our cross? That's not what Joshua is supposed to do. That's not how I've interpreted the Messiah will do things. And so as a result, I can't believe in this Jesus. Of course, he comes back to life <laughs> to prove that the reason I'm not coming as Joshua is because I love you. Because I want to be with you, which is why it goes on and it says, because he will save people from their sins. He's not trying to save an earth or save a land. He's trying to save people. All people, the entire world. And so he gave his life so that our sins could be paid for and we could be saved from the penalty that we deserve before a holy God. And see, they didn't believe they needed that. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious leaders, and the people of Jesus' day thought, we're pretty good, we're awesome. We have no doubts how awesome we are. And so we just expect Jesus is going to come back, overthrow the Romans. That's why this book is written to the Roman church. And they're going to overthrow the Romans, and then we're going to be in charge, and, and then we're going to rule and tell people what to do. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. First, I need to come and give the world the opportunity to repent before I bring my final judgment. And then he goes on, and he says, it's to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he, again, quotes the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that said what the Messiah would do. And it said, see, the virgin will conceive. Or will begin, become pregnant and give birth to a son. And they will name him Emmanuel, which means, or is translated, God is with us. See, here's the question of our day. Is God with you? If there's a God, does he give a care? Does he care? Does he give a rip? 
Are you so prideful like the Pharisees and Sadducees? You say, God's with me, and I, whatever I do, I'm a God with God. So I can kill people, I can steal, I can lie, I can do whatever I want in my personal life because God's with me, and so, hey, I can do whatever, and he's just happy with me. You see, there's two sides to this, and what the Bible is full of is the concept over and over again of doubt. It's of doubt. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, not ashamed of doubt. You see, how we handle doubt is really important. You're going to doubt. The Bible is full of stories of people doubting God. They sin, and typically their sin or the mess of the sin in the world is what causes them to doubt. And they begin to ask themselves and feel shame or see the shame and wonder, is God really with us? Does he really care? Where is he in the midst of all of this? And that's exactly what Paul has been talking about in Romans. He's trying to give them a confidence, not in themselves, not that the Romans are going to get overthrown, but a confidence in the authority of who Jesus is and what he came to do and will come to do one day. What happens is we love to run to people who tell us what we want to hear and will be there for us so that we can extort something from them and them from us. And then eventually, we end up alone, completely in doubt of who God is or everything that we lived for. We keep tracing or chasing an already fulfilled promise because we doubt it. And we doubt it will ever come, and I can't wait anymore, and I have to have it now. And we lose hope because of doubt instead of strengthening our faith in our doubt by saying, I have doubt. I, I don't know, but I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust not myself, not the world around me, but I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust his word that's been given as a gift, and I'm going to try to trust his people. See, that's the message that Paul has been writing. And, and let me explain something to you. We can have a false confidence, there's a lots of Christians, people who have false confidence. We can end up not being ashamed when we should be ashamed. We can end up in a place where we start to live a lie instead of living the truth. Now, doubt is a normal response. You're going to doubt in your life, I promise. I absolutely promise you're going to doubt. And it's, it's a simple emotion that you're going to have. You won't ever get rid of it. We'll see that in a minute. But we, if we respond badly to doubt, it will cause us to go deeper and deeper and deeper into dark places, even if we're temporarily feeling good. And that's what Paul is showing us, is it's easy for us to believe lies, and here's what our enemy does, here's what the world around us does. It gets us to believe a lie. It twists something for us to believe a lie, and then the enemy comes in and he brings doubt with the truth. See, the enemy told them that God is God when he came to the Garden of Eden. And then he questioned and he said, well, what did God tell you? And they told him what God told them. And he said, well, did God really say? See, he brought in God to the conversation. He brought in the laws that God had put out there. And he brought all that in. And then he sowed a seed of like, well, did God really say? Oh, why? Well, I'm not, wow, I've never considered that. Because mankind had never doubted God before. And then doubt happened, and they saw that the tree was what? Good for their flesh, their appetite. And Paul just wrote, we should die to our flesh, not feed our appetites, but to give up our lives for others. And it's easy for us to believe a lie and not even know it. Let me give you a few examples. There's actually an effect, many of you might know what this is, it's called the Mandela effect. It's an effect that scientists have found. Let me give you some examples. Who's this on the screen? 
C-3PO from Star Wars, right? It's C-3PO. Does that look like C-3PO? Right? What about this C-3PO? Which one's the real C-3PO? Every Halloween costume is the one on the left, but actually the one on the right is the one from the movies. He has a silver leg. The silver leg was actually purposely put there so that George Lucas could tell the earlier stories and bring C-3PO into it and say that he had been hurt in his past and he had to take a substitute leg. It was actually put into the story and now you're looking at it going, that can't be true. You're like on your phones looking like I gotta find this. It's true. In the first movie when they're coming down the hallway in, in A New Hope and he's coming down the hallway with, with R2-D2, it's, there's a silver leg. And you're like, what? Okay, what about this one? Fruit of a Loom. Does that look like Fruit of a Loom? What if I told you there was no cornucopia? There, there's no cornucopia there. That, that's the real Fruit of a Loom. What about this one? Pikachu. Is that Pikachu? Is that Pikachu? Which one's Pikachu? The one with the stripe or not stripe? It's the one with no stripe. How about this one? Chick-fil-A. Right? We'll give a shout out. The real logo has a K. How about this one? Snow White. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Wrong. That is, not what, that is not what was said by the witch. What was said was magic mirror on the wall. Or how about this one? Ready? Mr. Rogers, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Beautiful day. That's wrong. Wrong. The, re the real song is, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be? It's this neighborhood. Now you're all freaked out. Like, thank you for sowing doubt in our lives. This is exactly what can happen in the Christian faith is that what happens is we begin to believe things, we hear things so often, it sounds right, it feels right, it looks right, and we never question it. Because, well, I don't want to doubt. Because my faith is so fragile, I'm afraid to go deeper and ask deep questions of my heart and the world and things around me. I'd rather just live with the lie and sing my song that it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood whatever neighborhood it is, versus Mr. Rogers saying, no, it's this neighborhood, because he understood that children lived in horrible neighborhoods, and he was inviting them to this one. That's what God does for us. You see, what if the lies, though, we believe aren't like things that don't really matter, like it's not the end of the world, if you didn't get C-3PO's right, you know, leg right? What if the lies are things that really do matter? They're lies that we believe that have devastating consequences and someday we will face a doubt and we will have to face the reality of that when there's a God that says, I want you to know that you don't have to be ashamed in the midst of doubt. You can trust me. We're gonna go through a lot of scripture fast. So here's the first one, Romans 13, 14. We looked at it at the end of last week. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Accept anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. Let me break this down for you real quick. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are things we can put on. 
I can put on the gold leg, I can put on the silver leg, right? One is correct, one is wrong. He says we need to be sure that we're putting on first the, the overall conviction that Jesus is who he says he is. And there may be things that we have to figure out below that that we don't really know, but overall, we have to believe that what Jesus said, what he did, what he came to do, and what he asked us to do, we put that on in our lives. We embrace that without doubt that that's who God is, that's what he's done. Second part, and make no provision for the flesh. So am I not supposed to feed myself? Because I'm, I'm going to eat today. I don't know about you. I didn't plan on fasting today. I'm not fasting. I'm probably going to go home and eat leftovers, but they're good leftovers. So do we not, do we, don't, we don't, no, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the fleshly desires, and he even qualifies it because he says in regard to its lusts, what we lust for. You know what we lust for so often in church? When the pastor goes too long, we lust for food. It's time for lunch. I'm kind of hungry. Saw a video this week of churches in China. Some of them would travel 13 hours to be able to gather together on a train. They would come 13 hours to gather together for a day, and 75% of the churches, people in the church service, which there are only 22 in the church service because they can't gather any bigger, 22 out of the 22, 18 of them had been arrested and put in prison for their faith, and they're still traveling by train. I'm sure they're not really concerned about what they're going to eat that day because they're feeding their spiritual flesh. They're not really that concerned about their physical flesh. It goes on. It says, accept anyone who is weak in the faith. So do we just accept anyone? No. Paul qualifies it. He says, you don't just accept anyone. You accept those who are weak. So what's the difference between weak and strong? We'll see that in a minute. And then he says, but don't argue. Oh, so don't argue. I'm, I'm arguing right now. I shouldn't be arguing. No, he says, don't argue about doubtful issues. We should argue for the faith, Paul says in another book. We should be arguing for the things that, that we know are true. And at foot of the cross, here's how we kind of walk through this. We teach this in our membership class. You'll hear us talk about this. Three levels of belief, conviction level, persuasion level, and opinion level belief. And the statement that we use is die for your convictions, teach your persuasions, and keep your opinions to yourself. And where all the battles happen are between the lines. We might be persuaded, for example, of a mode of baptism, whether we sprinkle or we dunk or you dunk three times forward or one time backwards. We might be persuaded in that. It might be a high persuasion because the Bible talks a lot about baptism, but is it a conviction that I have to put someone outside the church because they, they haven't been immersed the way I told them to or they, no. That's not a conviction-level belief, in my opinion. I think if you look at the scriptures, it's not. But it is a high persuasion. We should look at people and ask, why won't you be baptized? What's, what is it in your heart that's standing up to God that says you doubt that he wants you to be baptized? Forget the mode. Just what is it? Opinion-level belief is like maybe you have like a scripture that says, and I've used this example before, but you believe that the Daniel diet's better than the John the Baptist diet. I think there's probably only one person in our church, and he will remain nameless, who could live on the John the Baptist diet. He ate locusts and honey. Many of you know who I think that might be. <laughs> he could probably make that work. The rest of us? Or we live on the, you know, New Testament diet, which is all things are clean, Peter saw. Like, which is it? And see, that's what Paul is getting down to. He's saying, I've been teaching you for 13 chapters 
And now I've got to get real practical with you about what the church looks like so that you don't doubt, but you live by faith. He goes on. He says, now I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause dissensions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have learned. He says this later in chapter 16. So in chapter 16 of Romans, and I'm giving you this because as we back up, you have to have the context of what Paul's leading to. Paul is saying to watch out for those who cause dissensions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine. Listen, he says to to make sure that we hold good doctrine that we've learned, but he says, don't put obstacles, he says to watch out for those that are that kind of doctrine, but don't cause dissensions over things that don't matter. And then he says, avoid them. So we just read accept them, and now he says avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They desire the hearts of the unsuspecting, or they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. It's almost like you can see them because they don't tell you the hard things or hold you accountable to the hard things. They just kind of smooth it over and don't talk about it and I, I don't want to offend them and we just have to accept everybody. And, and Paul's like, no. We go on and You read this, it says this in Jude. It says, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, Jude, we did a series in that, said I wanted to just talk about the good news. That's all I wanted to talk about with you. But I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. He says to contend. For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of God into promiscuity. In other words, you can do whatever you want, Jesus will love you. He just so wants to be with you, he'll he'll take anything he can get. And then it says, denying him, denying Jesus Christ, our master and Lord. These people are discontented grumblers, walking according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. And he says, you're going to spot them over time because it's going to always seem like they keep talking about how God always works for their advantage. He blesses me. I've been blessed. It's another blessing and another blessing and another blessing. And I'm like, where are the persecutions and suffering? Because God promised persecution and suffering. I never hear you talk about those. I'm a little concerned for your faith. I'm not wanting people to suffer. Hear me out. I don't. But when it's always blessing, 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 and that's all you're looking for, you need to be very careful that you're not using God for your advantage instead of living for his advantage. Jude goes also on and says this, have mercy on those who doubt. It's hard to doubt. It's tough. It's hard to watch people struggle with sin. It's hard to watch that. But he says, save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. He says, have mercy, but just be careful how you're interacting. And then he goes on, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling. In other words, as you're helping people, as you're speaking the truth, as you're having mercy on people, God can help you to stand. Your standing isn't with other people. Your standing is before God in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Jude says, I want you to be confident that you can stand. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. Jesus said that only God is good. When he was asked, good teacher, what shall I do? Or what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, only God's good. In other words, do you know me? Have you put God on? Do you know him? And he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. 
God wants us to feel shame? Yes. He wants us to feel shame so that we humble ourselves and cry out and say, God, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to be this person. And he says, good, will you surrender? Can I change? Can I come into your life? And he says, look at verse 15. But as you think about the shame, it's not, I'm going to shame you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to put it on social media for everybody to see. No, he says, yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him or her as a brother. May the Lord of peace We doubt God's peace. We doubt his presence himself give you peace always in every way. Paul's longing is, I want you to have peace, but let's be honest, we're in the midst of a war. And when you are in the midst of a war and you're taking hits, it's hard to sit there and say, wow, I'm bleeding out. Well, I have peace though. No, that's exactly what God says. We're in the midst of a war and we need to find our peace in him. John, the Apostle John said this, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching is the one that has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and don't say welcome to him. For the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. John says this teaching being the teaching about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Not peripheral issues, but the central issue of am I a surrendered person to God? Are the actions and the thing I do in my life through the lens of I want to bring glory and honor to him. I want to have no doubt that I know him and he knows me. I want to have full relationship with the God of the universe and that's going to be my major priority and I'm going to let him order the other relationships in my life according to what he desires, not what my flesh wants goes on in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, I wrote to you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. In other words, you say don't associate with anybody, then you're going to become Amish and live out in the middle of nowhere. But even they associate with the English, right? And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. You guys may not be able to eat with me. (laughs) I may not be able to eat with you because these things I've done before, I've been verbally abusive before. So I guess I'm out. I guess Jesus doesn't love me. I guess that's not what Paul's talking about. When he writes this, he's saying, look, I've warned you. We've had this conversation. I was there as a pastor for you forever. We've talked about this over and over. Why do you keep doing it and believe that it's okay to do it? If you're doing that, it shows that you don't really know who Jesus is. And I'm concerned for you. I love you. I don't want you to doubt his love. Paul goes on and says, for what business is of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? See, the church today, we love to judge everybody outside the church, but we don't like to judge our own family. So many people will will post of of the terrible things that they're frustrated with that everybody else does, but if their kid does it, they get a pass. We are talking last night on Facebook, the people that will complain about people aren't distancing and they're not wearing a mask, and they've got three kids in three travel sports traveling all over the states without masks on to play. What? Like, just don't put it on social media. No, you're, you're, you're going to put it out there that this is a terrible thing, but then my kids, well, they're, they're special, and, and they've been permission to play sports, and so they can, well, 
I get it. I want people to, to be responsible and obedient to the government. I want them to follow guidelines. I get that those guidelines aren't there, but don't act like this is some huge conviction you have and everybody better do this, and then you're not so convicted that you're not making your kid wear a mask on the floor. It's, it's just don't do it. Or at least say I struggle with it. Post your son's picture of him playing on the floor and say, I hate that he's not in a mask. I'm not sure what to do about this, but I'm submitting to the coach, and this is what i got to do. Love you all. Have a nice day. Put that on there. He goes on. He says this. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. In other words, you shouldn't be using social media for rebuke. It's, a, it's an instant. He says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Woo, that's great. But if you won't listen, take one or two more with you. By that testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, then to the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. How do we treat unbelievers? We love them, share the gospel with them. We're careful not to give them too much authority in our life to tell us what to do because we know if we do that, we're in trouble. But see, here's what the church doesn't do anymore. We don't go through the process of helping people see, do I really believe or do I not believe? Because we're so afraid to make people doubt. We're so afraid that, that people, we don't want to make anybody doubt God's love. We don't want anybody to, I don't want anybody to doubt God's love. I also don't want to do a doubt, doubt his justice, his authority, and that his love tells us what to do because he loves us. I don't want anyone to doubt that God. But what we've done is we've, taken the silver leg off of our God and put a gold one on and said, hey, look, didn't this look great? It's like, well, that's not the God we serve. It's different. Oh, but it's just a little thing. It's not. It's a major part of the story that, that is important later when C-3PO is seen in the early movies. It goes on, it says this, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. In other words, we have to recognize what his love really is. We can't make up our own definition. We can't chase our own desire. We have to say, what does God's love look like? And you know what his love looks like? He loved us first by dying for sinners and stupid people like you and me. That's what he did. He didn't come back as Joshua and say, I'm killing all you, I'm tired of this, I'm starting over. He did that with Noah. He didn't do that with us. His love is one that is truthful, it's hard, but it's patient, which is why he hasn't come back for 2,000 years. We're still waiting on the fulfillment. We're still doubting right now because he hasn't fully fulfilled his covenant to Abraham thousands of years ago, his covenant to Moses and the people. He hasn't fulfilled his covenant to David fully yet. It's already fulfilled, but not fully yet. And so we sit and we wonder, well, then is God really loving? Is, can I really trust him? And he says, if anyone says I love God yet hates his brother, he is a liar. That begs the question, are they a brother or aren't they a brother? How do we determine that? Matthew 18 tells us. Paul helps us to see it when we look at these verses. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. If you can't love someone who's a struggling brother or sister in Christ in their sin, and you can't love them and work with them and serve them, which we'll see in just a moment, God says then I'd question, Paul says, I question whether the love of God is really in you. 
And then he says, and we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who started, look at it, he says, I'm sure of this, I'm so confident, no doubt, I am absolutely certain that he who started a good work in you will carry it on until, on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, until Jesus comes back a second time. Paul says, I want you to have no doubt that Jesus is coming back and he wants to do a great work in you. He is doing a great work in you. If you've invited him in, he is trying to work and it is a struggle and it's a fight. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. See, that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to let God get too close to our heart. And we don't want to let his truth through the body of Christ get too close because it hurts when we have to change. It's just better to find somebody who's like us, does what we like, and then kind of go along with them. But eventually what happens is we end up all having to stand before God himself. And he says, you are partners with me in grace, Paul says. In other words, we don't earn our salvation. It's not like I keep working and that gives me confidence. You know what happens when I try to work really hard to serve God? I doubt more. You know why? Because it's like, I did this and I didn't get this. And I tried this and it didn't work. Versus when I just lean into who God is in his grace and his glory and his power and his awesomeness. And I believe what's true about him. And I read his word. And it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. But it's a list of his heart and his character. All of a sudden I'm in grace. I'm not in the law anymore. And it changes me. It changes how I interact with people. And then he goes on and he says both in my imprisonment and defense and establishment of the gospel. In other words, he's like, I'm in prison. (laughs) How can you be in prison and be this confident that God's with you? Well, because I'm in prison. No. We would say that anyone who was in prison would be like, I don't know. Paul's like, I'm here because I, for God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection Christ Jesus. Do we miss one another? Or do we just dismiss one another? Do we miss the relationship? That doesn't mean we reestablish it as we just read, but is there a longing to pray for that person that that hurt you, that, that is far from God, that you want them to know him? Or is it just, well, I'm moving on, done, dismissed. God says, if that's your heart, you better check yourself. Because that's not what God's heart is. Romans 14 says doubtful issues. Remember, that's what we're talking about. Paul says not to argue about doubtful issues. I'm giving you all this because I want you to see what's doubtful and what's not. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. Someone this week, when we were talking about this verse, said, see, vegetarians are weak. That's just what this verse says. That is not what the verse says, okay? That that's not what this totally means. But what he is saying is that there are things that are doubtful, in the Christian faith, that God gives us permission to act differently under his grace. But then he goes on, he says, one who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat must not criticize. The word for criticize there is the word in Greek, krino. It means to condemn. It means to go around condemning without having gone through the Matthew 18 process and the church telling you how to behave with that person. Let me say that again. It's you criticizing and condemning without going through the Matthew 18 process where the church is agreeing with you how to love this person back into the community of faith. He says, don't do that. Because if you do, one, or do not, he must not criticize one who does because God has accepted him. 
He goes on, it says, who are you to criticize, crino, to judge another's household slave? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand before the for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, he can't stand on his own. You can't stand on your own. It's not about a list of look at all the righteous trips and things I've done and mission trips and see that means I don't have to doubt. Wrong. It's about who you're standing before. And if every day you come before your God and stand before him and say, I'm here, I love you, I just want you to be with me. He's like, yes, that's what I'm looking for. But if you're like, God, you just stay there, I'll stay here, I'll come to you when I need you, I'll try not to do anything bad so you don't have to come out of your house and hurt me, and we'll just keep it that way. That is not the God of our Bible. Paul goes on and says this, one person considers one day to be above another day. Someone else considers every day to be the same. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. This is a personal conviction. This is what we would say is a persuasion belief. This isn't a belief for all the church for all time. God says there are things that he will ask you to do that he won't ask me to do. One that's a big one in our culture is the fact that there are alcoholics who know they can never drink again, ever, ever, never, never, ever. There are some Christians who choose never to drink because maybe they have an addictive past. Maybe they've seen the pain of alcohol. And there are Christians who take a little wine for their stomach, which is what Paul told Timothy to do. So which is it? Is there a demon in the bottle and when you put it in you, he comes out and he's like, "Ah, no. But we need to ask the question. We can't just say, God, I'll do whatever I want and there's no consequences. We have to ask the question, why are we doing what we're doing? Am I using that alcohol to soothe myself? I have a friend who says, I never drink when I'm not in a good mood, ever. Because I'm never gonna do it, that's my rule. It's a rule in my house, Like, my wife knows to hold me accountable. I only have a beer when I'm in a good mood. That's it. (laughs) I never want to go down that road. I thought, he's not even a believer. I'm like, dude, that's really wise. (laughs) It goes on and it says, whoever observes one day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord since he thanks God. Do we thank God or is it like, well, I'm kind of keeping God out of this one. (laughs) I can't give God thanks for this thing I'm doing. I'm trying to keep him out of it. And then he goes on, he says, whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, yet he thanks God too. In other words, Lord, I'm thankful that that I didn't have to do this, that I haven't spent money on this. And the other person says, Lord, I'm thankful that you've provided the money for me to buy this. And I'll look at that person and go, oh, you're horrible. No, I asked, "Did, did you do it through prayer and counsel and thinking about it? And does it fit your budget? And like, is it honorable? Okay, great. I've never owned a new car. I don't look at people who do and be like, oh, they're going to hell. I probably will never buy a new car because of my own personal convictions. But I don't look at someone and say, well, if you did, no. So he's going on and he's saying, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Let me ask you, are the choices that you're making living for the Lord And are they causing you to die to yourself for the Lord? If you're not, I promise you, 120% that you will have a lot of doubt in your life. And you will have a lot of shame. And you won't be not ashamed with doubt. You'll be totally ashamed in your doubt. And it'll be miserable. Paul goes on and he says this in Galatians, "For for through the law I have died to the law so that I might live for God. 
Look at what he says. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, the decisions I'm making, I want to ask God about it. I want to ask him what he wants me to do. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul says, look, I don't set aside the grace of God and be like, I don't care what God has to say, and I don't take the grace of God, and I said, I, God says this, but I'm going to do this and put God's grace on it. Paul says, no, I just want to surrender myself to what he wants, and I recognize that that might be different at the persuasion and opinion level belief than my brother, and I may have scriptures that say this is why I do what I do, and they may have some scriptures to say this is what we do, but if it isn't a conviction level, like doesn't change who Jesus is, doesn't change the Bible story to be self-focused instead of God-focused, then I can kind of be patient to see how that plays out. I can have my doubts about it, but I should keep my mouth shut and just see how it plays out. But if it's sin, if it's a problem, if it's a conviction, if I'm concerned for them, then I'm supposed to engage the conversation of why aren't you dying for Christ in this area of your life? Romans 14, Paul says, therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and came to life for this, that he might rule over both the dead and the living. Christ is a ruler, like it or not, he's the one in charge. And then he says, but you, why do you criticize or condemn or judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. For as it is written, I love this, Paul doesn't say this is my opinion. He says, it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. Which means every day we should be bowing a knee. And giving praise to God and asking him his opinion as ruler over our lives. And when there's an area of our life we're unwilling to do that, you are setting yourself up for a mess and a lot of doubt. And he says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, Paul says you're going to have to give an account of yourself. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say this. Well, he or she or they did that to me and that's why I did this. God's going to say, that's not what my word says. I understand, I empathize with you that they may have manipulated you, they may have done these things, but why didn't you ask the question? Why, did, why aren't you surrendering to me? That, that's, that's what we're going to do when we give an account. It's not I'm going to be able to say, or I'm not going to be able to stay, stand before him and say, well, I tried not to ever doubt, and I just believed you were great, and I lived my life, and I let them live their life, and in the end, whatever happens, happens. God's like, no. Paul goes on and says, therefore, let us no longer crino, that means judge or condemn one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in your brother's way. Can I just tell you, the Bible says that there are stumbling blocks and pitfalls that we can put in our brother's way that are sin. Because I won't bring it under the authority of God, I'm bringing sin into my brother or sister's life. He says, look, decide that you're not going to put a stumbling block of personal conviction or personal opinion, and don't put a stumbling block of sin in the relationship. Don't do either. Put Christ in it. Put him at the center of it. Exalt him as Lord and ask him what he wants and do what he asks because he loves you and wants no shame and no doubt. He says, I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing itself is unclean. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that person, to that one, it is unclean. For if your brother is hurt by you, 
by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy that one Christ died for by what you eat. In other words, if you're saying, well, I just can't ever be with them because they, they're a vegetarian. What? Daniel lived and had a vegetarian diet. So you, you curse Daniel? Well, Daniel couldn't have been saved because he's missing out on steak. I'm just saying. Like, and here's what we do. Are you ready? We are terrible as, as, as Christians of taking our personal convictions and elevating those above the convictions of God. I am amazed at how many people on their social media accounts will put what their real convictions are and put it out there for everybody, but I will scroll through their feed and I can't find a single thing about the authority of God or Christ on anything they post. I'm like, or everything's positive, oh, God just loves me. And then you look and you're like, wait a minute. You can't say that and do that. And then that's, those are opposed to one another. And I don't know what to do with it because social media is so weird. Do I, do I go to the person personally? Do I message them? I've done that before. But I mean, is that what I'm supposed to do? I, I don't know. But he says, for if your brother is hurt by it, then you should consider. Because here's the deal. If my conviction is just hurting people that are brothers, that, that are in unity in the church, not people that we've said, hey, they're totally off and they keep getting hurt by us because we keep telling them the truth and they go, you're hurting me. And we're like, no, we're trying to help you and not have a stumbling block in your life. That's different. But there's sometimes when there's this impasse and what do you do when you live with someone and you can't get along on what to eat? Or, or you, your family or your kids, how do you work through that? Well, you sit down and you pray. You go back to the authority of God's word. You invite the church into your life and you figure out how to come up with the solution to this, not, well, I got my conviction, you got yours, and hope you have a good life. He goes on, he says, this is a trustworthy saying in Titus. I want you to insist on these things, Paul says. So everything he taught Titus, he says, insist on them so that no one, or that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good work. These are good and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. Not, not just, no, you, don't do that. Don't, you're not going there. We're not going to discuss that. Like, this is where the, this always is where it leads, and we're not going there. And then he says, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins, being self-condemned. In other words, you're like, I, I just got to turn them over to, to, to God. I just, he goes on, he says this in Timothy, teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches another doctrine, that's the conviction level, and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he's conceited. He understands nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. For these come, from these come envy, quarreling, slander, even suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness, look at what it says, is a way to material gain. That's the prosperity gospel right there. If you know Jesus, then your life's going to turn out this way. It's going to be beautiful and wonderful and everything else. He says, no, 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 watch out for those teachers. It doesn't mean God doesn't want us to be blessed. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us and care for us. He does, but he also promises us the hard things in Scripture if we live for him. 
And what happens in the church is that we don't tell both sides. And so when people begin to have hard things and they begin to doubt, we've built an entire thing of lies and they look down and say, why do I have a silver leg? I thought I was going to be healed. I thought everything would be fine. That's a lie. That's not what the Bible teaches. I'm sorry. That's not what God ever said. And that's not what he modeled when he was God with us on the earth. And he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Saying, I want to be like you, Father. I want to be like you. Help me to be content in you and what you offer and what you say I can do. Help me to find that and then give that away to people. Instead of looking around at all the things I have to have and want and everything else, and if you don't give it, then I'm done and I'm out of here. He says this to Timothy, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days for people will be lovers. We talk about love all the time. I love my dog. I love my car. I love my this. I I love, I love, I love. He says, yeah, they're going to be lovers. They're going to love everything. They're going to say love all things, love everybody, but they're going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, with love for what is Uh, Without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, saying, I got Jesus, but denying Jesus' authority or his power in their life. And denying his family's power, which is his bride, the church. Well, I like Jesus, I love you, but I hate your wife. You gonna hang out with that person? Honey, this is my best friend, Joe. He hates you, but I really like him. Like, we're we're like peas in a pot. How's that going to go? He goes on, he says this. For among them are those who worm their way into households and capture idle women, burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these resist the truth. Men who are corrupt in mind, worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their lack of understanding will be clear to all, as was theirs also. But you have followed. You see what Paul says? He goes, it's going to become clear someday, but I want you to follow. He says, they're going to try to worm their way in. you got to see that they're worming their way in. They're going to take advantage of those who are doubting and hurting and don't know what to do. That's what they're going to do. He goes on and he says this in Romans, therefore, don't let your good be slandered. Remember, good means God. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, Paul says, question yourself. Are you living for the kingdom of God? Or are you just trying to chase a kingdom for yourself here? Do you look around at the kingdoms everybody else has, the houses, the cars, the stuff? Do you look around at all that and go, oh, man, I, w- I want that? Are you content with what God has given you, but you're not content with the sin and the mess and those that are perishing? He goes on and he says, so then we must pursue what promotes peace and what builds one another up. And listen, you can build one another up by calling out sin. That's what we've been reading. There's a time to build one another up by saying, stop, don't do that. You're you're building a wall around yourself. You're not building up others. You're actually walling yourself off. And if you do that, you are going to be in big trouble. And he says, do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to cause stumbling by what he eats. It is a noble thing not to eat meat. 
So Paul earlier said, oh, see, the vegetarians. And they says, no, it's a noble thing not to eat or drink wine or do anything that might cause your brother to stumble. That's a noble thing. The question is, are you doing it because God says and because you love your brother or are you doing it to try to prove a point? If you're doing it because you say, God, I want to love you, I don't know how to do this and love you, and I really want that person to know you and love you, and if I participate or agree, I don't know how to do that. So if that's your wrestling and what you're doubting with, that is a great place to be. But that's not what we do. We put up, this is my conviction, and you can deal with it. Have a nice life. We don't invite anybody else into the conversation. Help us. He goes on, says, do you have a conviction? That's a personal conviction, not conviction-level belief, but persuasion. Keep it to yourself before God. The man who does not condemn himself by what he approves is blessed. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because he's not eating from conviction. And everything that's not from conviction is sin. In other words, why do you do what you do? What things are off limits to God in your life and you tell him, I'm going to do this and I don't care. Because if you have something like that, you pretty much have identified an idol and you've identified the sin in your life. And you can, listen, you can know that God says, I want you to stand. I love you. I don't want you to be ashamed. I want to forgive you, and I want to walk you through this. And can I tell you, the story of the Bible is people who are weak in their faith, struggling with God for a lifetime. It's a story of conviction, persuasion, opinion, trying to figure that out and trusting God's grace. Paul says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. This is a key indicator of where we're at. Are we looking to please others? Or are we looking and saying, I'm just looking for people that are strong like me, that agree with me, that do what I want to do? Are we looking to have those conversations to draw people in to the beauty and the glory of God? Not for our own pleasure, but so they could see the pleasure of God in their lives. That's what Paul is saying. Look at what Paul says about being strong. This is key. He says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. We don't know what the take it away was. It was something Paul saw in his life that he hated, that kept him from fully serving God in his own opinion, and he didn't think it was profitable for him to have it, so he begged God, please take this away. It's killing me. We don't know what it was, but that was what he said. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. In other words, Paul says, I wish you would take this away, but if you're not, I'm going to tell people I have this weakness. I'm struggling. This is what I struggle with. This is what I'm going through, and I'm going to invite them into my life, and I'm going to boast about that weakness so that you can use that for your glory and for your strength. That is not something we do in our culture. But that's the culture of the church. It's where confession comes from. And he says, look at this. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong in him. When was the last time you took pleasure in those things. See, we've been taught in our culture that if you have insults or weakness or catastrophes or persecutions, if there's pressure, you're not doing something right. You need, maybe, but it may just be your normal. You're having normal Christian world behavior happening to you, and you're doubting, and it's hard, and it's a mess, and you can glorify God and say, God, thanks for helping me be weak so I can be strong. 
As we wrap up, Paul says this, each one of us must please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, somebody insults us, we don't look at it as, well, they're really insulting Christ. We don't check our heart and say, well, are they insulting me because I sinned against them? I needed to ask forgiveness? Are they insulting me because I picked at an idol, I picked at something, and they're coming after me? But I don't want them to stumble over that, so I have to feel that tension. Paul says when you feel that, our response should be like, wait a minute. I'm being treated like Jesus. Wow. Thank you, Lord. You've invited me so closely into a relationship with you that I get to share this with you. I get to share this life that you shared and all the blessings and all the helping that Jesus did of people and the praising and the parties he went to. All that plus the cross and the mess. Again, conviction, persuasion, opinion-level beliefs that we need to process through and we need people to help us walk through those things. Otherwise, we'll feel shame and terrible doubt. As we wrap up, Matthew, remind you, says, when the world was in shambles, when the Roman Empire had overthrown Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was at its lowest point, when it seemed like God wasn't going to come through, it had been thousands of years since Abraham, thousands of years since Moses, hundreds of years since David, hundreds of years, all of that was going on, all of that had happened, all of that, and God comes through and he says, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord, through the prophets. See, the virgin will, be, will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. Let me ask you this morning. Do you believe God is with you? Do you believe God is with you pridefully and arrogantly in a way that is going to disappoint you someday? Because you won't deal with the reality of life and the reality of where you're at are you in a place of such despair and doubt that it's hard for you to believe that you don't have to be ashamed that God offers his grace to you even at the greatest sin? If King David is in heaven, if King David can be forgiven for taking a woman illegally and killing her husband on the battlefield and trying to cover it up and the mess that came with that, I think God's grace can be sufficient for you too if you'll come to him. Because David kept inviting God back when he would sin. He kept asking God to be an authority in the middle of the mess. That's the story of our book. Let me ask you, have you made that decision to invite him to say, I want you to be with me. I surrender. If you haven't, you got to do it. Because if you don't, you're going to stand before God one day with doubt and shame. And if you've asked Jesus to come in, you're going to stand, you're going you're to fall before God one day knowing your shame, knowing your doubt, and you're going to hear him say, it's okay. I love you. I've been working in your life for a long time. Now let's perfect it. Let's get it done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to walk through this together. Lord, sometimes these are hard teachings as we try to figure out how to live in our world, how we confront sin, how we walk through things. I thank you that your word doesn't hide that. 
that your word doesn't lie to us. It gives us the full truth of who you are and the world we live in. And it gives us the full hope that you are with us and that you will come again. And then if you don't come again in our lifetime, you promise to take us to you, the scriptures say, because of our relationship with you. And so this morning, if there's anybody who's doubting that you are God, if there's anybody doubting this morning that you love them, that that they can experience your grace, they think that you've put them away and they can never be won back. We just read scriptures that said over and over and over again that we, we feel that so that we can draw back to you. So Father, this morning, draw us to you. For those of us who know you, who are confident in our relationship with you, who are walking with you in that grace, in that truth, in confession, Lord, would we celebrate you this morning? Would we go this week out into the world celebrating who you are and what you've done? Lord, we thank you for all these things and we praise you. Amen.